some dangerous large uh, carnivore out there. Yeah, I saw that bird pick a young deer off the road and fly away. And uh, it was just about getting dark, and we started panicking, running down the bridge, not really having any clue of storing rocks in our vicinity, good-sized rocks. And uh, I stopped long enough to get a 357 out of my backpack and look back, and that's when I thought I saw one. Uh, pretty well known um, in the Bigfoot community and outside, 
and I'm really interested in speaking with him this evening. Yeah, he's he's been a a big a researcher with the DFRO for quite a while, and and uh, I I could hear you, you just couldn't hear me on uh, previously. So you did a great job of of uh, going over his his uh, biographical information. Oh, so. there, there's much more to it, but I'll, uh, I'll have him. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm going to go ahead and bring uh, Russ Jones on to Montrex Radio because I want to get right into the show here. And so here's uh, Russ. Hello, Russ. Hey guys, how are you? Hey, good, Russ. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on. Excited to be here. You bet. It's our pleasure. So, Russ, you've been for the folks that aren't familiar with you. Can you give them a little uh, rundown on who uh, Russ Jones is? Sure. Um, I have been a chiropractor for 25 years. Um, went to uh, undergraduate in Indiana on a baseball scholarship and uh, had a science degree and then on, went on to uh, Davenport, Iowa for graduate school. And I uh, grew up in southeast Ohio and um, then came down here and started practicing immediately after uh, I graduated, uh, really in Charleston, West Virginia. And I still uh, have family and have a farm in southeast Ohio, and I go up there usually every other weekend and uh, spend a lot of time in the woods in uh, West Virginia and Ohio. And um, I'm a master naturalist, and um, that's about it. That's all there is to know. Uh, I got interested uh, in writing a book about two years ago. I just decided that uh, when I started going back through my notes, and, um, you know, I kept pretty good notes on all the witnesses, but, I mean, I was getting so many that I didn't even really remember some of the witnesses, and I thought, you know, I need to to do something with this. And, um, you know, it took about two years to get through the process. And so uh, kind of a long haul. And and it is – is uh your book is the is it based on reports strictly from West Virginia or across the nation or I'll tell you uh, by and large the reports I put in there at first I thought about doing some type of encyclopedia um, and doing a number of states but just starting from as far back as the modern reports went up to modern times but the thing that I didn't like about that was that you know I just couldn't vet those reports I mean. I didn't know all the people that were doing those reports. I didn't know the different groups all the time. And, um, you know, so I just I couldn't be sure. And so what I did was um, I took the reports that I liked the best, the ones that I did, and the ones that I knew for sure that were um, completely reliable. And I took the ones that I liked from other people that I did that I was able to talk to the witness and to talk to the investigator as well. And, um, but the big thing that I was concerned about is, you know, I thought that there was a lot of evidence that was out there. I just didn't think that the way that it had been organized, that, uh, people were able to really grasp what it was. And I wanted to put something out there that accomplished two things. And one was the fact that, you know, I wanted just a reasonable person that had an interest to be able to pick up a book and me be able to provide them with enough information that they would say at the end of the book, you know, I think there may be something to it. It's at least worth checking out. Um, it's at least worth uh, some of the scientists or maybe some of the universities just to spend a little time or take it a little more seriously. 
And the second thing was that, um, you know, just my frustration being in the Bigfoot community of uh, people not wanting to share information with each other, um, some of the groups not getting along, some of the people not getting along. And I had found a couple of different ways that um, I found that people could go into an area that either they had been before or they hadn't been before, and I just walked them through, you know, how I went into an area and found out whether or not pretty quickly that there was some activity in that particular area if they were interested in Bigfoot and maybe didn't have a background. And the people that were Bigfooters that had a background that maybe they would just take something that I said and said, you know, I know what he's saying, but, you know, I that's true, and I thought of this too, and maybe they would be able to give me something back. So hopefully uh, it will accomplish those things. Yeah. Well, what, and, what a fantastic – what a fantastic idea! Really, I'm I'm definitely going to be purchasing one of your books. Uh, I'm re- I really like the idea and your approach with this book and and trying to make it uh, for your 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 not even just for your Bigfoot or, or Bigfoot fans, but for those that are just maybe interested in the subject in the subject matter to go in here and and, and look at what's out there and look at it reasonably and logically. It sounds like you really spent a lot of time on that, uh, making it for your average layman, but uh, providing some compelling stuff. Uh, do you mind sharing um, a few of the uh, encounters in the book or, or uh, you know, a chapter? No, yeah, uh, I'll tell you one of the things that uh, I guess because of my science background is that, you know, when I look at these reports and, you know, of course there's a lot of reports that come in from the BFRO database, but, you know, once you're kind of known in a community and people know you in the region that you're in, then, of course, you start getting a lot of phone calls on your own. I'm sure it's like that for you guys as well. And so, um, Indeed. <laughs> and, you know, that's where you get most of your stuff from. But over the course of time, you know, it's not enough. You know, people want to call you and they want to tell you, let me tell you about what happened to me 20 years ago or six years ago or whatever it was or a road crossing because, you know, here in West Virginia, that's the primary siding is a road crossing. And, you know, you could publish 20 of those, but it just doesn't really help in terms of getting closer to the animal or getting closer to Bigfoot, whatever Bigfoot is, and um, trying to put some science-based evidence down if, you know, all we're doing is going at night and walking around the woods and hitting some trees and yelling and screaming and that type of thing. And I really wasn't even sure when I started all this whether or not Bigfoot actually existed you know, I was pretty sure that I hadn't seen one. I had some experiences, and I thought, you know, if they were around, they were probably in the Pacific Northwest. And the very first witness I got was a state trooper in central West Virginia. And when I talked to the witness, um, you know, the story is that he likes to ginseng hunt, which is very popular through Appalachia. And a lot of people enjoy getting out. And, of course, they can make some pretty good money on the side doing it, too. And him and his wife were riding on a right-of-way and um, putting along on their four-wheeler. And he took a trail off the right-of-way. And they were just moving real slowly looking at the ground. He was trying to find an area that he thought that would look good for ginseng. And he told me that he looked up and he saw a fire-burnt dump is what he thought it was. He glanced, looked back down, and as he was putting along, something made him look again. And he said, Russ, have you ever seen one? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, they're so large. It just, it just catches you off guard. And 
he uh, instantly was trying to put his four-wheeler into reverse, and his wife said, you know, what are you doing, what are you doing? And he said, look, 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 and she just started screaming, oh, my God, no, oh, my God, no, and they got out of there, and um, really it was compelling later just to interview them and talk with them, and that, you know, they had moved from the country into a neighborhood. Um, she would hear something outside and think that Bigfoot was outside their house. You know, it really was traumatic for her. I took him back there the first time that he'd been back he went with another police officer they held guns out the entire time he chain smoked he bawled you know it was compelling he was about 30 feet away from the animal and so you know i knew that he believed that he had seen something and she had seen something too you know it was a daytime sighting that close and then over all these years now in the end even though you realize that witness testimony can be terribly unreliable, it's the witnesses that are so compelling. And the witnesses that you have, they're doctors, they're lawyers, they're rangers, um, all kinds of police officers. You know, they're, they're every type of West Virginian, Ohioan, East Coast person, American that you expect to see. They're compelling people. They, some of them are outdoorsmen. Some of them have never been outdoors. You know, that's the thing that's compelling about the witnesses is there isn't a specific type a lot of times. But over the years, more than anything else, um, that's what made me believe. I mean, the first three years that I started investigating reports and going on public expeditions, I didn't have one thing happen to me that I couldn't explain. And I was in the very hottest places sometimes, you know, going to a place where there was footprints or someone had had a sighting and I was there, you know, within hours of it in the very hottest places and just didn't see anything that, you know, I could, um, could not explain. I mean, you know, of course my level of belief is probably maybe a little higher than a lot of people, you know, I mean, it has to be pretty compelling for me to be, you know, to say, Hey, that's, that might be something. Um, but like I said, so, you know, in the end, I think it's the witnesses that compel me. I lay in the book some of the things, you know, in terms of the footprints and the scat and the different things and the size of the tracks that, you know, maybe hasn't been thought about um, by people prior or maybe it was scattered throughout some of the different books. But I tried to lay it just concisely, not too much in any one place, for just, you know, people to look out and just as a way to say, you know, all these things make it compelling. Um, but that was my first report that I did and um and you think you know well gosh maybe uh, after that everything is not going to be as good but really I've had some great reports in the state and you know people ask all the time you know I do a lot of the reports in Ohio Ohio gets about three reports a week uh West Virginia gets a report about every other week but of course you know West Virginia while it's a large state is very rugged very mountainous very lightly populated there's only two million right. people in the entire state, you know, and it's a six-hour drive to one end to the other. Most of the population is just in little pockets along rivers and, you know, dozens of miles of forest roads or forests between little small roads. You know, I was in the woods yesterday and, you know, it was in a very remote area hiking off trail, and it was around 16 miles for me to get to the very next road and it took me two hours just to get to the top of the very first hill. So, you know, it's a very good likelihood that if something like that's going to exist and it exists on the East Coast that, you know, West Virginia would probably be that place. 
so what, very, what's behind, it sounds really squatchy. Yeah, sure. I'm sorry. Like, what's behind what's behind the name the you know, how do you come up with a name for the book? Oh, okay. Well, you know, um in West Virginia we had five Indian tribes that were around all the time and really they didn't live here a lot. You know, they may have been here seasonally and West Virginia was largely a hunting ground and I think quite frankly is because, you know, if you went to um Kentucky or Ohio with flatter soil is richer. Um, here it's like I said, very steep, very rugged. Probably not some place that you know you'd maybe even let your enemy slip in a little too close before you realize they were there. But three of the Indian tribes had names for Bigfoot, and they were Stone Giant, Stone Coat, and Stone Man. And I just like Stone Man the best, but um, I'm not sure really. There's not anything in the literature about where the stone came from. I don't know if it's because they throw stones or that they have great camouflage, or maybe it's because, you know, they're found a lot of times up on tops of ridges, and, you know, the ridges here are very rocky. Um, you know, but the reports go back um, well into 1800s with print, and, of course, like I said, three of the five Indian tribes that were here had names for them, and I'm sure the others did as well. It's interesting because the Tenasqua, um name, name for Squatch is uh, they they tie into like looking like they're made of stone, and uh, I, I wonder if that uh, you know they talked about maybe it's because they they were were dirty and their their hair was caked and it gave them a stone like appearance, but but maybe that carries over into the into your area. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, you know, you the animals look life from one coast to the west. Um, the witnesses talk similarly about them. And so, you know, it seems reasonable that um, the Indians and the early settlers would have, you know, similar experiences as well. Absolutely. So, Russ, I, I like to ask all our, our guests, how, what originally got you into squatching? I mean, that's... Okay. that's that's quite. Well, a, I mean, you're 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 uh, taking a lot of science and uh, in for your occupation and stuff, and then you have gone as far as uh, becoming a master naturalist, and uh, which is pretty uh, a pretty impressive credential for a bigfooter per se. So, um, go ahead. Well, I'll tell you. Um, you know, like I said, I grew up in Southeast Ohio, and. Um, Vinton County is where my family uh, spent all of our time and of course Vinton County still only has one stoplight today much of it's uh, national forest land and state forest it's at the end of the um, Allegheny Mountains so it's uh, you know it's steep it's uh, a real pretty area it's rolling hills some steep hills surrounded by farmland and my family was known for dogs rabbit dogs, coon hounds. We were in the woods literally for anything that there was. Uh, anything that was in season, we hunted it. Anything that you could gather, we gathered it. And people would come from long distances to see how many deer we had hanging during deer season and to talk to us about our dogs or try to buy our dogs. And so from a young age, um, I killed my first buck when I was seven. I killed my first squirrel and grouse was when I was six with the family and rabbits and it was just part of the life that we lived to always be in the woods 
um, I had taken a friend that's uh, retired from the military out to run rabbit dogs on New Year's Day, and I was a teenager. It was a very cold day. New Year's Eve, we had gotten about four inches of snow. And the next day, New Year's Day, was a really cold but beautiful sunny day. And I was running the rabbit dogs around a hillside, and about halfway up this hillside is a cave. No one would guess that the cave is there. You can't see it. And the only reason I knew it was because, you know, my dogs had ran in there before, probably with coons or possums or whatnot. And I used to have a trap line, and so I'm sure that, you know, I was always nib-nosing in those areas looking to see what I could find. And when I came around that hillside, I found fresh footprints, fresh meaning that something was in that cave, and uh, the cave was, you know, maybe 50 or 60 feet deep, and something was weathering that storm. I had never heard of Bigfoot. I didn't know what a Bigfoot was. The tracks were not exceptionally large. I would say they were a normal male size. And, you know, so it was apparent that whatever was uh, in that cave had weathered that storm and came out, heard me coming around that hill, had left. And it was interesting because, you know, that um, the other person that was with me, we talked a long time with those tracks trying to figure out what it was. I thought, you know, did some vagrant or some homeless person or some drug person um, find their way to that cave way out in the middle of nowhere there. And I walked up and looked inside to see if, you know, there had been a fire or there was some clothes, you know, there was nothing like that there. And really didn't think that much more about it. Um, you know, I just didn't know that there would be anything out there. I didn't, I just, it was another mystery in nature. Interestingly though, while him and I were standing there talking, I remember hearing some type of loud yell or scream in the distance. And in retrospect, now what I believe is uh, once you got to the top of that particular hill, uh, it went into a state national Florida and some of the most rugged terrain in Ohio and certainly the most remote area in Ohio. And I think that there was a good chance that it was probably a juvenile and he'd went over there and on top of that hill had made some type of noise or yell to see if he could locate the rest of the family group. And that was my first experience that I'd had. Still didn't know anything about it. <clears throat> then later that year, I'd went uh, fishing, and there's a little stream that in the summer you could probably jump across it. But if you went about a mile and a half back into a wilderness area, there was no trails back there. There was no path back there. You know, once again, it was just something my family found hunting. There was a beaver dam back there, and the fishing was unbelievable. It was, you know, the, this places that you dream about that as soon as you throw your line in, you know, something hits it and and you come out carrying this, you know, slew of fish every time that you go in there. And I've been back there, oh, I don't know, dozens and dozens of times, whether I was setting turtle hooks for snapping turtles or I was trapping or I was just hunting something. Never had the first experience back there at all. There was an old homestead back there, an abandoned house, um, maybe a barn that, uh, you know, were overgrown probably from the 1800s, and I was fishing on that beaver dam, and I was with my uncle. We weren't talking. We were both wearing pistols because, you know, there's a lot of snakes back there, and I heard something coming down the woods across the water from me. It was only about maybe 40 feet from me or so, 40 yards, and it's very brushy over there. You can't see good, but, you know, I just assumed it was probably a deer maybe coming down to the water, and I glanced over to my uncle, and I saw him looking too, 
And about that time started the loud monkey-like screaming, shaking of the branches, um, you know, something very upset that I was there or we were there. Went on for about a minute and then quit. Never heard another word. We just continued fishing. I mean, you know, I asked my uncle, I said, you know, what do you think it is? And he said, just, just look for a tree and then you can get to it. It has to come across a little bit of water to get to us. Well, it quit. We never heard anything. You know, we just, once again, didn't know that there would be anything to be worried about into the woods. And then later that year, I was watching In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy and saw the In Search of Bigfoot episode. And that's when all my thinking started to go, wondering whether that's what I experienced. And since that time, I literally had watched and read everything Bigfoot that there is and always had been interested in it and by and large fairly consumed with it. And then about 10 years ago, it got to the point where it was ridiculous and it was an addiction. And I'm sure you guys know exactly what I mean by that. Where oh, you know, yeah. you're talking to your witnesses every day, you're on the phone every day, you're doing reports, you're doing research, you're looking at Google Earth every day. And, you know, I have been consumed with it since then. And uh, after that time, um, on three different times in that area, I found footprints. And still to this day, in that same general area, I bought that farm. And I'm not going to say that that's one of the reasons why I bought that farm was because it was within miles of just where I had all those experiences and still Ohio's most remote areas. And so I have all the time camera traps out up there and I'm always in the woods up there. In West Virginia here, I only keep just a couple cameras at all, and quite frankly, it's because, you know, West Virginia is so vast and rugged that I only put cameras out in a place where there's, um, you know, just so many reports that, you know, I feel like I have a chance. In Ohio, you know, there's just not that much territory for something to be, and so, you know, if you can get in an area where you feel like that, you know, there's several ridges or valleys coming together uh, or maybe a remote beaver dam or something like that that, you know, maybe you would have a chance. And so, you know, if you're in the most remote area and you're in Ohio's uh, most remote park, you know, then it seems reasonable to me to put out eight or ten camera traps, you know, trying to block off a certain area just hoping for something. Right. Yeah, yeah. once you get launched into – when you have – and this is how I really, really got launched into this, was having an encounter myself. But, you know, uh, between all the reports out there and everything else, uh, you, 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 it does consume you. I know it consumes me, and I know it consumes Gunner, um, but it's a passion, and a passion we enjoy. I mean, you enjoy doing this, don't you? I mean, this is something that you really uh, has shaped your life and your pursuits. It does. You know, I, I'm – constantly looking for a way to spend time in the woods and while others would um, have other hobbies most of my hobbies revolve around when I go on uh, trips or vacations or I have a few days away I'm doing it someplace where I can get in the woods and fortunately in West Virginia you know uh, much like you know a lot of places in the Pacific Northwest I can be in deep woods just in a matter of a few minutes yeah, and uh, you know it makes it easy to go out. You know, I'm, I only live I live ten minutes from where there's you know sightings all the time, 
And, yeah. um, you know, but it's changed some for me too, you know, whereas I used to spend a lot more time in the woods at night. And now, you know, if I'm in the woods at night, it's probably if I'm with my friends or I'm um, taking part in some expedition or speaking somewhere and I'll go out at night. But, you know, it's cool to have those experiences at night, but, you know, it's just not that we're gathering so much evidence. And, you know, some of the guys, um, and, you know, out on the West Coast there, you know, Bart Cicini, you know, he has some of the, that, that great uh, thermal footage, and yeah. you know, no one's convinced by it but us. Right, right. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I'm spending most of my time in the day now, um, mm. you know, trying to get out there where, you know, I can see more, where, you know, maybe there's a chance of, you know, bumping into something that's young or bumping into something that's really old or, you know, bumping into whatever. I mean, I'm not sure that um, there's a very good likelihood of ever finding any bones or anything like that. I mean, I think it's a good idea if you're in the woods and you see, you know, buzzards circling your ears to smell, of course, to try to find what's causing the search of it. But it's interesting when I was writing the book, Chris Murphy had told me, the, you know, the author from, you know, Out Your Guys Way, that yeah. uh, he thought it was more likely that people would find a Bigfoot than their bones. Hmm. Well, that makes, so, a lot of, that makes a lot of sense to me. <laughs> I really tell you, you know, when you think about it, uh, you know, how hard it is to actually find some bones, you know, just like uh, Gigantopithecus over in China, you know, certainly there was thousands of those, and, you know, we have a thousand or so little bones. And, right. uh, you know, so the odds are finding bones here, you know, really small. I mean, a lot of the Indian mounds here on the East Coast, when we dig them up, there's nothing left. You know, the soils, yeah. a lot of places like here is very acidic. Of course, the yeah. uh, critters, the forests, the rats and the mice and the squirrels are on the bones, and by and large, uh, you know, nature takes care of it. Yeah, the, well, I, I absolutely mean, the agree with you about, you know... Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say the yeah. difference being is that we actually have, we're dealing with something that still is a living species. So... I mean, they're, we're not talking about millions of years ago that the species uh, went, disappeared. So, they're, I mean, it's exponentially uh, more chance that we that bones exist somewhere, but then it takes, you know, a person finding it and a person uh, either knowing that they're looking at something unusual or, or, I mean, the chance of a Bigfooter finding a bone is minuscule. Yeah, because uh, there's so few people in so much area that you're talking about that covering. Yeah, but, but there are big bones bones out there. Oh yeah, you know there is for sure. <laughs> I don't think that anyone's going to pick anything up unless they see a big skull. You know, it right. might be, you know, a big femur bone or whatever. Of course, people may or may not even know what a leg bone looks like, and you know, most of the time, if it's out where you guys are, they're going to be thinking, you know, it's an elk or it's a moose or it's this or that. You know, here they're thinking, you know, is it somebody's horse or cow or, you know, we're starting to get some elk and, you know, they're being released in different parts out here in Kentucky now and West Virginia soon. But, um, you know, I don't think that most of the people are going to pick those up. And quite frankly, there's examples all through history of large skeletons being found and, you know, being shipped to the Smithsonian, being shipped to different museums, or museum, different um, universities. And, you know, they just, they got lost. And there's some evidence that some of them were destroyed in times of, in the early uh, 1900s uh, in regards to um, whether it created some type of issue with religion. Um, so, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think it likely, 
that that's going to happen. You know, my best guess would be that, um, you know, one's going to get hit on the road somewhere or maybe a hunter. You know, I've taken three different reports here in West Virginia where hunters had very clear, wide-open shots from a close range, you know, were able to observe um, Bigfoot. And, you know, none of them um, were interested in pulling the trigger. I think, quite frankly, when you talk to those witnesses, it just catches them off guard. Um, you know, I can remember uh, even 20 years ago, you know, we had very few coyotes in this part of the country. And, um, you know, of course, we thought, you know, we were going to shoot them all whenever we first started seeing them. And I remember when I was deer hunting with my brother-in-law, and he told me he saw a coyote. And I said, well, why didn't you shoot him? He said, man, it just caught me off guard at first. I thought it was a dog, and then it was just gone that quick. And, you know, that's the way the sightings are a lot of times. And, you know, who thinks they're going to see Bigfoot in the woods when you're you're hunting? And, uh, you know, I'm not sure that any of us are, you know, that prepared for it when it happens. Right. Yeah, and, and we, like Gunnar and I, we, we've taken in many reports uh, exactly how you described, where the hunter had it. In fact, a good friend of ours now had had um, had a Sasquatch in his, in his scope. I mean, he had sighted it up and... Uh, could have taken a shot, but didn't because he really didn't know what he was looking at, for one. And that's... Well, first he thought it was a person. Yeah. Yeah. First he thought he'd drawn up on a person, so he's like, oh, crap. And yeah. he was embarrassed. Yeah. Yeah, pointing yeah. at another hunter. And then realizing it wasn't another hunter, he still obviously didn't know what he was looking at, but it had, um, you know, it was a hominid. I mean, it was, you know, it, it looked semi, you know... Human. Human. Humanoid. Yeah. So, yeah. Right. Yeah. You don't fire at that, obviously. Yeah. You know. Uh, right. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, that, I mean, hasn't been, you hear. Yeah. Hasn't that been your experience too, Russ? I mean, anybody that that I've talked to that that has looked at it through a rifle scope, um, it they go, "Wow, that it." A lot of times, the response is, "It looked too human for me to shoot at." Yes. Exactly yeah. right. You hear that it, through history when you look at some of the best reports and and research some of those. And then when you have, start having your own um, instances, that you'll hear that as well. Um, I mean, I've met a lot of people that tell me that they would shoot one if they saw one, but you know, <laughs> you know, it's not it's not that easy. It's not like you get a pick. I mean, I tell people that all the time here in West Virginia. You know, we have seventeen thousand bears in West Virginia, and I always say, well, how many how many have you seen? Because you know, I'm in the woods all the time, and unless I'm in a coal mine or a dump um, where there's a lot of them you know, you just don't see them. And they're not exceptionally bright animals. They don't see very well. And although they smell well, um, you know, it's just not that common for you to see them. And when I was doing research, I talked to one of the DNR officers here in the state. He told me they'd never found a bare bones that they knew of in the state, you know, aside from the ones that got hit on the road. So, you know, if there's 17,000 of them and they're not smart, you know, what are the odds of you encountering something in West Virginia? You know, you might be talking about something that's, you know, 200, 250 Bigfoot in a state, probably about the same for Ohio. Ohio may be one of the only states that has more Bigfoot than bear. I mean, Ohio only has 70 resident bears. Wow, I was not and, aware of that. Um, wow. Yeah, you know, so it's, uh, it's really uncommon. I think here, you know, in my mind that um, I know Jeff Meldrin had talked before, and I want to say that, he had said uh, was around 500 to 750 square miles per Bigfoot, you know, talking about the Pacific Northwest. And here, you know, I'd estimated somewhere between, you know, 150 up to 500. And in my mind, based on the reports and the people I was talking to, 
it was coming out to about a family group in a county. So, you know, maybe in the most rugged counties, we have some counties here where there's less than 10 people per square mile. Um, you know, maybe in those counties, having a couple family groups. But, you know, I would tell people, you know, our counties here are 25 miles wide and, you know, 50 miles another way. And can you imagine, you know, how hard it is to find your dog? Well, imagine mm-hmm. something that grew up that while they're generally interested in humans, they're leery of them. And, mm-hmm. you know, so they might kind of creep around the edge, but, you know, they've grown up knowing where people don't go, where's the safe place, you know, the times of the year when they start to hear more shooting or people walking into the woods, deer season, where to go. And I just think the odds of being in the right place at the right time are just infinitesimal at best. Yep. The uh, Real quick, though, on that, you know, deer – uh, seem to know when hunting season is because you go hunting for a deer and they're nowhere to be found. Well, you know, off off season, you you, you see them, you run into them everywhere. <laughs> Bigfoot, I would imagine, yeah. is very aware of this. Absolutely, and you know, going back to the camera trap thing that we were talking about before, you know, like I'm using the uh, Reconyx uh, HC 600, you know, the top of the line, the $550 cameras, and I'm putting a little ghillie suit on them. You know, I'm taking the time. They're all hidden. You know, you just wouldn't see them in the woods. They're flashing black. And you know what? The deer still look at them. You know, the animals still know that they're there. And the University of Georgia did a study, said that the alpha male coyotes, you know, they're not getting very many of those on their cameras. The alpha males are leery of their cameras one way or another, whether they hear them, they see them, they smell them. They're avoiding those cameras. And it's hard for me to imagine if a coyote is avoiding a camera, the Bigfoot's not avoiding a camera as well. Yeah, it makes makes but, a know, lot of sense. That doesn't mean I don't put them out. <laughs> yeah, no, oh, no, same here, same here. You know, I, I get fantastic videos of a lot of known animals, and don't have any of the uh, unknown <laughs> or proven. Yeah. So, uh, you know, yeah, but I still put them out. I, it, yeah, you know, I I put them out. Um, I was with Cliff Berkman up at the Ohio uh, Bigfoot um, meeting, the conference here a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about that and talking. You know, he was showing up a couple of the pictures that he had that, you know, he thought that were, you know, pretty reasonable. Of course, you know, they're a uh, a backlit type thing at night that it's hard to tell very much. You know, certainly nothing that's real very clear that everybody would be excited about. But, you know, it seems like a lot of the ones that are apparently or people think may be a Bigfoot, like the Jacobs photos out of Pennsylvania, those places, you know, they're on cheap cameras. And um, usually I have uh, several habituation witnesses that I work with and that's one of the ways when I start with them when they think that they're feeding something is you know I'll have them go to Walmart and just get the cheapest game camera they can find and just put it on it put it right on the food you know if you're feeding a coon you're feeding a possum you're feeding a fox or a coyote you're still going to get a picture and you'll know that you know that if the feeding stops then you can take the camera out see if it starts again you know then maybe you got something you go from there. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And another point is that if you, by putting a camera out there in general, you're no, you're, you're going to know, you know, what, you know, as a hunter, you put a camera out there to see what's coming through, uh, you know, what buck's coming through, where's his territory, blah, blah, blah. Well, as a researcher, game cams provide a lot of knowledge of what's passing through that area, what kind of animals, uh, you know, what, what are they doing, that sort of scenario. Yeah, that's true. And I think that, you know, one of the hard things is that, 
you know, you have to set aside when you're considering cameras and realize that Bigfoot doesn't move like the rest of the animals. You know, it's not following all the time on deer trails or on human trails. Now, you know, of course it does just like anything else because a lot of times things are going to take the easiest path or the only path. But, you know, a lot of times I'm looking for places that there's noise, whether it's a stream or there's some road that I think that I can get lucky. Or maybe there's a cliff uh, close to a stream that's making some noise and I can block with cameras between that cliff and that stream, you know, hoping that, you know, I'll just get lucky and, you know, something won't hear it when it's going through. And I have a picture of Bigfoot, but quite quite frankly, uh, the only people that will believe it would be the Bigfooters. You know, everybody else would, uh, and society would think that, uh, you know, it's somebody, he's got somebody out there running around the woods with a Bigfoot costume on. Yeah, yeah. Well, but, I mean, say there's 200, just say, as you mentioned before, say there's 250 in West, you know, Sasquatch in West Virginia. Yeah. It's still a needle in a haystack trying to capture it one on, on, on a camera. I mean, a needle in a haystack. Yeah, you know, how much, uh, how many would you have to have just to cover, you know, if, if they're covering 50 feet in one direction, you know, like how much would you have to cover to, you know, to cover a big area? I mean, I know, Gunnar, you know, you got, you're with Olympic Project. How many of you guys try putting out there? You guys have tons of cameras, and, you know, and, and you're trying to cover this huge area. I mean, it's just yeah. a unfathomable thing. And you know, trying to predict where we think Sasquatch would be going through. You know, I mean, it's, it's and, and we don't know. It's a guess. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that's right. It's, uh, you know, we have to, to strive to um, think differently. You know, for instance, like I'm looking for rock overhangs a lot of time. Of course, I'm always in there to see if I can find, you know, evidence of nesting, if I can find tracks of some type or whatever. You know, I'm leaving little googals like collared rocks and sticks and little windmill things. You know, the kids uh, blow on the spin around. Mm-hmm. Pinwheels, that's right. And, uh, you know, I take pictures of them, I GPS them. Then when I'm in that general area, you know, it may not be a year, sometimes it's a couple of months, it just depends on where I'm at hiking, that, you know, I'll stop by and check on those things to see if I can find something more specific. You know, quite frankly, there's just not enough reports to know that um, in a certain county, in a certain place, in a certain week, there's going to be a Bigfoot activity. You know, I have a good idea a lot of times in the fall, um, say in southern West Virginia, there's a town called Logan, and that there's always audible, um, you know, different, usually a few sightings and, you know, a little bit of audio they'll come out there about deer season every year, and it's within 12 to 15 miles. But, you know, is that close enough to get me anything? No, you know, not really. Yeah. So, right, you know, and we call large... about the, the needle in the haystack with the moving needle. I mean, yeah. You've yeah. got these vast areas, and you, and and it doesn't even speak to the intelligence of, of the of our quarry. I mean, it's like they're they're out there. They they're aware of us. You know, it it e- humans even have to hunt deer, which they're mm-hmm. plentiful, and there's people who go out and go hunting. That's what they call it hunting and not killing. Is that you have to right. find them, and that you got. Uh, an animal that isn't as we're talking about is probably quite a bit more intelligent than a deer and mm-hmm. in less population. So there, I mean, it's just, people think, well, why don't you get pictures of, you know, well, it's not that easy. You know, there's, you know, I've talked to people that, that want to shoot one. And, yeah. 
know, and it goes back to what you're saying about between the cameras and finding the bones as well. You know, these, these, you know, I'm just going to say animals, just going to say these, let's just say primates, because, you know, whatever you believe they are, a primate is going to cover all that. So I'm just going to say these primates that um, they're going to think differently. So whether we're trying to find their bones or, you know, we're trying to find a place to put a camera trap out that we're going to get them, um, you know, it's a challenge to think differently like that, you know, because we're not around anything like that in the woods. But the only thing I know for sure is that the things that we're doing aren't working at this point. And largely, although we're more creative and we have better toys, you know, we're still doing the same things and getting the same type of evidence that, you know, they were 25 and 30 years ago. Or, you know, similar to the time when the four horsemen were chasing, you know, after the Patterson-Gimlin film in 1967. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, Russ, sure. are there are there any... Are there any trail cam pictures out there, uh, video uh, evidence uh, that you find compelling or interesting or that you have a tendency to believe may be legit? Anything you've seen uh, that maybe has not been shared out there? Because, you know, uh, one, of the, one of the cool things about being a researcher is some people will show you stuff. They just don't want it out there, and, and it won't be public. They just say, hey, check this out and, you know, give me your thoughts. You know, uh, anything uh, that you found compelling or interesting? You know, I've seen two different times is all picture that uh, pictures that I found compelling that I believed um, that the, the, in all likelihood, you know, would have been a Bigfoot. Now, uh, both times, uh, once was uh, someone showed me something in Kentucky, and another time it was uh, here in West Virginia, um, the primate is what I'm going to say, the Bigfoot was older. And so when I say that, you know, that's one of the reasons why I think that, you know, we need to take that in consideration. You know, certainly something that's older can't move and be as mobile. So, you know, we need to try to find some of these areas there. Something would feel safe and maybe hole up in, and, you know, maybe you would have a chance then of getting back there and be able to get, you know, some type of evidence. But, you know, once again, I mean, elephants bury their dead and, you know, so what are the odds of, you know, finding something like that? But I guess my only point being looking at it from a science perspective is saying that, uh, of course, we do kind of backwards because, you know, in science, something is found and then you investigate it after that. Of course, you know, we can't, we haven't really found Bigfoot. So, you know, we're going out and looking for it kind of based on anecdotal evidence of what people tell us and what our own personal experiences have been. And that's what we go out there. And, you know, I think that most of the time people are going out at night and I always think that they're, they're looking to have an experience, mm-hmm. you know, an encounter. I mean, with not really having a plan on how to gather some type of evidence, you know, they just go out there and, and they're going to do whatever they're going to do, but there's, there's no hope of gathering things. But, you know, I'm not saying it's not cool to have an experience, um, but I'm just saying that, you know, when you first start deer hunting, you're really excited to shoot a doe. Well, it's not long after that that you want to shoot a buck. And then once you shot a couple bucks, well, you know, then you want something bigger. And so I think Bigfooting is the same way. You know, you start researching these reports, and at first every report is interesting, and you want to hear it, and you want to take notes and all this other stuff. And and the same thing, you know, you go out at night, and, you know, maybe you heard something break, and maybe you thought you heard something walk, and something grunted, and something did this, and something bluff charged you think or whatever. But after a while, you know, it just 
for me anyways, it leaves me wanting more. You know, it's just, it's not enough. I want to, I want to find out what it is. You know, I want to yeah. know for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Going so out. That at, was one of the things. Go yeah. On, I was going to say going out at night is if you want to experience possibly, you know, it's uh it's fun. I, I, you know, I'm fortunate. I'm out almost every weekend, sometimes during the week and I'll, I'll, I'll camp out. But there's two sides of that coin. There is, is I do, you know, the research during the day, and I do research at night, but with a plan. You know, I mean, I've had an encounter yeah. and possibly other encounters, but what am I doing with my collection and what is my goal and my purpose? Yeah. Yes. That's exactly right. I mean, I think that we're all not very good at that and that we, you know, we need to really have a plan in place before we even go. You know, what, what is our purpose and what we're after? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. and, I, and then, you know, I understand that in some places, you know, somebody's in – you know, whatever state, let's say they're in Ohio and, you know, you know, Ohio, there's not really, I mean, especially in the Eastern part of the state, you know, most of the Bigfoot sightings are around parks. I mean, there's not that much land and, um, you know, so there's not that many choices of where to go. And I'm sure for, you know, you guys like me, it's, I can go places where no one's ever been and have that opportunity. But before we do that, I think that, you know, we need to, have a plan in place before we go. You know, what am I after? What am I going to do? And that was one of the things, you know, the two of the things I talked about in the book that I thought were important was, you know, you hear all the time where, you know, Bigfoot eat deer and, you know, of course, if something's going to get through the winter, it has to be, you know, after a calorie-dense food, something that can get them through and really fill them up. But, you know, in most of the states to say that, you know, to look for a high deer population isn't helpful in getting close to Bigfoot because deer population are high everywhere. I mean, there's a lot of deer and it just doesn't help me get close. And so one of the things that I compel is, and people can do this in their own region of the country is I call it treat foods is I think that Bigfoot is interested in treat foods being foods that he can't find all the time of the year. They're seasonal. They're, you know, certain types of berries, there are certain types of plants, there are certain types of things that are uh, exceptional sugars that you don't find easily all the time, you know, orchards, um, certain types of um, outlying farms that have certain types of food. And so, you know, when you go into that area, you know, it's not helpful to know that, oh, there's a lot of deer here or, you know, whatever it happens to be. I'm always looking to try to find that time of the year or a time of the year that would be compelling to find a particular fruit or berry or treat food. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds I'm not like sure you're, if I'm explaining that really good. Oh, no, yeah, perfect. It sounds like you're a constant innovator and, and, and always changing up your tactics and ideas. Yeah, you know, I think that that's what we do. We go into that area, you know, so there's a bunch of Bigfoot reports. And so let's say you get a witness and somebody calls or a neighbor says, hey, there's a Bigfoot over here and, you know, three-gap mile junction. And so when I go to that area, you know, of course, the first thing is, you know, I want to know whether or not it's even reasonable that, you know, when you talk to that witness, do they really see something or is it just whatever? I mean, the TV show has been great. You know, who would have thought it would have been so popular for all these years? But quite frankly, I mean, Prior to the TV show, largely the public didn't even know that Bigfoot made sounds. I mean, people had Bigfoot sightings, know that you know they knocked on trees and that they they yelled and 
roared and had these noises. And so now, you know, a lot of the reports that come into the BFRO, maybe the majority of them, are noises, and they all go something like this. I have been in the woods my whole life, and I know every animal in the woods, and I've never heard this before. And, you know, so you got to make sure that there's – is it even reasonable that they might have heard something or they did see something? And so after you get to that point, then I want to know, you know, why is that animal there? Why, why is that Bigfoot there? You know, is it staying in that area? Is it passing through that area? You know, when I look on Google Earth or I drive around, you know, what is it that would keep something there? You know, what, you know, what is it that makes it there? You know, and I think if you can answer that, answer that question, then a lot of times you can get closer to that. Or, you know, if you have footprints down a certain area a certain time of year, then, you know, there's a good chance that they're going to be back there that time of year next year, you know, possibly. But, you know, why are they there? Yeah. And, and, and one of the – one of the interesting things you just pointed out was, uh, you know, I've been in the woods for 30 years, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, uh, since the show, uh, you know, you have, and this, this incident came up uh, recently for me, where I knew of a group of individuals going out to a certain area, and they were going to, you know, do some research. Well, I knew of another group going out there uh, that the other group wasn't aware of. And I contacted <laughs> them and said, hey, <laughs> I, I said, I contacted them and said, hey, uh, if you guys are going to be in calls or knocks or anything, guess what? You're probably going to have someone on the other side of the hill responding. And guess what? It's just researchers. Uh, it's just people out there doing their thing. And so since, like, you know, finding Bigfoot and, and just the whole popularity of it, a lot of, these stu- a lot of this stuff in these hot areas are other researchers or enthusiasts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it's easy to imagine that in – a place like, say, you know, in Ohio, the most popular park, of course, is Salt Fork State Park, you know, 17,000 acres, you know, with maybe another 10,000 surrounding it, which, you know, relatively isn't very large. Um, a lot of times, you know, when you get a report or something comes in, and I'll say, well, you know, how much is lands in that area? Is there a lot of land or there's not a lot? And, and some will say, oh, gosh, you know, so-and-so owns a couple hundred acres. You know, people don't really have a perspective on the amount of land that it would take for something that large, a large priming to be able to exist on, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of land, it would be required for privacy, for cover to be able to, you know, get the kind of um, food that it needs to survive. And, you know, quite frankly, if, uh, if there wasn't a lot of area, then, you know, we would have a lot more sightings. And yeah. um, I'm not saying that in Ohio, three sightings a week isn't a lot because I, it is, but, um, you know, of course, I'm sure two of them are, sightings that, um, you know, are, are nothing. They're misidentifications. And that's the big compelling thing in Ohio and West Virginia, though. You know, so if you go through that course, and Ohio's going to have 300 sightings or 900 sightings, and West Virginia's going to have 100 in the course of the year, there's going to be four or five reports that are so compelling. You know, they are witnesses that are trained observers, like a ranger or like, uh, you know, a, a state trooper or a deputy. Um, it's going to be a doctor. It's going to be a lawyer. It's going to be someone that is so compelling that when you talk to them, you know, that's just an exceptional witness. Um, yeah. I remember taking a report from a guy that was the youngest sheriff in the state of Florida, later became a scientist and retired from NASA, and now moved back to West Virginia. And it seems like a lot of times West Virginians are always moving back to West Virginia when they retire instead of everybody else is moving, you know, to Florida or to Myrtle Beach and South Carolina or someplace like that. West Virginians are always 
feel the hills calling them home. And, um, you know, and he watched one uh, with another gentleman. He was riding with a friend of his that was a logger, and they were on a back road when their log truck and both looked down along a creek and saw a Bigfoot kneeling down, drinking water out of a, a pool of water like a human would with its hands. And, um, yeah, I hadn't, I hadn't heard that before. You know, I'd heard, um, you know, drinking, you know, putting their face down against the water, but I hadn't heard the, you know, the actual cupping of the hands or whatever. And, um, you know, and then I remember not long after I started taking reports right off of Charleston, of course, you know, if you fly out of Charleston, you get up in the mountain, it's just green, steep, rugged terrain, no houses anywhere instantly. And um, just right outside Charleston, the capital city where, you know, 250,000 people live, you know, there's instantly that type of wilderness. And there was a gentleman that called me and said that he wanted to tell me about what had happened to him. And um, there was a cemetery that was on the edge of a, a mountain. <clears throat> of course, cemeteries, you know, a lot of like right-of-ways or edges, you know, they create these things where a lot of wildlife like deer will congregate because, um, you know, it's, so there's clover there, the food's getting mowed, or the grass is getting mowed, so there's a lot for them to eat there. And um, and so he saw a Bigfoot in the cemetery in the tree line. And, you know, one of the common things I think that I hear from witnesses a lot are the fact that they lean back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And it makes me wonder if there's not something, you know, in their vision that's maybe um, – better suited to um, look at certain distances or, you know, of course, deer do that a lot of times. You know, they'll stomp or they'll lean their head down. You know, they try to get you to move. It's like the way that the anatomy of your eyes is set up so that they can't see that great unless you're moving. And so, you know, I wonder when we hear that Bigfoot's leaning back and forth, you know, kind of like ape-like, you know, you hear that about apes, how they, you know, kind of bob up and down or lean back and forth you know, whether they're trying to gain a perspective on what they're looking at. And so it was interesting. Aside from that, the uh, the gentleman had told me, he said, you know, I'm just going to tell you my name. You can't tell anybody who I am, but I just i am telling you this so that you know that, you know, I'm being serious. And it was one of the mayors that we had of Charleston. You know, but he, is there anything, <clears throat> any advantage to a politician for him to call some guy that's a, that's a doctor that lives in the Valley that's interested in Bigfoot and say, hey, you know, don't tell anybody because I might lose an election or I can't run for another office. But, you know, that's the way a lot of the witnesses are. You know, there's a lot of them when I was working with Finding Bigfoot in Ohio and West Virginia that could have been on the TV show, and they weren't interested. They didn't want to be on the TV show. You know, they wanted to tell somebody their story. And aside from that, they weren't interested in publicity. Well, speaking of that, Russ, now having, you know, you're you're, uh, a BFRO a person you're involved with BFRO. You yeah. the BFRO gets a, a absolute crazy amount of reports sent to them, uh, and yes. it's it's insane. Uh, I, I got friends that work for the BFRO, and they tell me, and they just can't get out and investigate them. They're you know everything's just the BFRO. Not everybody, but those that are aware of BFRO think, oh, there's all these researchers and that you know. Um, but actually. You know, and nobody's getting paid to do this, so the yeah. researchers are spread thin. But a lot of these reports 
go um, don't get research or, or the, the people don't get contacted. I mean, of course, uh, some of them are just you know bogus misidentifications, but there's some really interesting ones uh, given to the BFRO in their website and you know private stuff that never get investigated. Uh, you know why? And I know why this is, but you know uh, I don't think people realize how many reports get sent to the BFRO. It's insane. Yeah, it really is. I think that. You know, you're exactly right in that, you know, you have some states that, um, like Ohio right now, there's probably seven or eight people helping with reports, but there was a point in time, probably, say, seven or eight years ago, where largely there was just maybe me and one other person uh, that were even doing reports, and, you know, you're getting several weeks, so you can imagine in some of the states, you're cherry-picking. You're only taking the very best of the reports because, you know, you just don't have time to get to anything. And, you know, I published a report, uh, this has been years ago. It was uh, from a medical doctor in Florida. It was like 1968, <clears throat> and it was a West Virginia report, but, you know, he had lived in West Virginia then. Um, but I just did it for posterity's sake. You know, it wasn't important any longer. Um, because, you know, who knows, it might be a subdivision where, you know, you had deciding or whatever. It doesn't really help. You know, I just, I always feel like that there's somebody looking at those reports that is a scientist that maybe is going to be the next great anthropologist or whatever it happens to be that's super bright, that's had an experience or is just interested in Bigfoot for whatever reason. And for that reason, a lot of times I'm always, especially the people that I've brought into the group, I'm always trying to get them to just publish their very best reports. And like you said, there's a lot of them that are out there and you'd be shocked at some of the great reports that, you know, there's just not always time to follow up on everything, you know, because, you know, like you said, you know, it's not a paid position. I mean, everybody's doing this on their own and everybody's working and everybody's got a life, you know, and you're trying to do that on the side. And of course, like you guys, you know, we all have our own places that we go. We have things going on that we're trying to do our own research in. And, um, you know, so I guess it's unfortunate. And it skews some of the numbers, too. For instance, like I don't think that anybody thinks that Illinois probably has that many Bigfoot there, but there's an investigator there named Stan Courtney. And, you know, let me tell you, Stan's as good as anybody is, and he does all this obvious stuff, and he's uh, really a nice guy and does a great job. Well, you know what? If you file a report, he's going to call you. But... Mm -hmm. A lot of states aren't like that. So when you look at, at the numbers, you'll see the reports with the biggest numbers. Of course, Pacific Northwest is always, you know, at the very top and exceptional, and then maybe Ohio's up there somewhere. But Illinois shows up in those numbers, and it's not because there's so many there. It's because, you know, you have such a good investigator that's there. And, wow. you know, so it kind of skews our numbers when we're looking at them, you know, that way too. So that is, it's hard yeah, because, fascinating. you know, in the in the old days, it used to be Matt Moneymaker handpicked the people that he had in the group. And, um, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about, you know, in the old days, meaning, you know, in the late 90s and the early 2000s, the old days, the big, the BFRO stuff, some of the guys were that are around were kind of, you know, legend people. And, you know, things happen. I mean, people go in to do their own things, or do they really want to have to answer BFRO reports and do reports, you know, they've already done a million of them. And so people come and people go. And now, you know, the show is taking a lot of time. And so, you know, Matt's not choosing all those people. I mean, I'm sure he's choosing some people around that he knows or whatever, but by and large, 
the people in the States are helping pick other people that they think that would be good for the group or whatever that means. And it has to be um, people that you can count on because, you know, what if you're, you know, up at some side of the mountain in West Virginia and, um, you know, you're 11 miles from the nearest road and you break an ankle or you're in there in the middle of the night and something's grunting at you. I mean, you know, is somebody going to stay beside you or, you know, is somebody going to bail out there and, you know, not help you? Right. And the, uh, well, it's, you know, I have a friend in Montana uh, who's got a partner and they're basically <laughs> covering for the BFRO, the, the state of Montana, two individuals. Uh, and, wow. and they've got a ton. And he's one of these guys that's another Stan Courtney will contact you if you file it. But it's crazy. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, if, if people were aware, I think, of how many reports the BFRO gets sent, and yes, a, a good portion of them are uh, bunk misidentifications, they're not worth following. Yes. But a lot of them are solid, and you know it, it, it takes money and time to go to some of these areas. I mean, you know, you cover yeah. a region or an area of interest, and you try to keep that as your area, and you'll go contact people and whatnot. You know, sometimes they're just outside. You're like, well, that's you know, that's 200 miles away, or that's 100 miles away, and that's yeah. you know, time off work and gas. It's mental. I right. don't think people really comprehend the amount of reports and what it takes to to actually reach out. And uh, it's not just a, it cannot just be a, just a phone call. You know, uh, yeah. that doesn't cut it uh, for uh, it to get on the BFRO site. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've heard before that there was a million hits a month on the uh, website. I believe it. Yeah, which if is not more. Which is really. I wouldn't be surprised now, yeah, especially with the TV show. Yeah, you know, it's, uh, it's popular. And like I said, you know, that's by and large a lot of the reports that you're getting. And, you know, not, and I'll get things from witnesses, like I'll send an email or something that say, hey, just touch and base or whatever. Or, Can you tell me where you were at when this happened? And, you know, they'll say, oh, it happened. That was, a, you know, it was a year ago. It happened so long ago. And there's all these people that want to talk to you. But, you know, every time, if you call anybody for anything, it's an hour. And, um, yeah. you know, for most people, you know, like I see patients for a living. So, you know, I'll be in my office by 8 in the morning and I leave around 5.30 or 6. And then I go to the gym every day and, so when I get home, it's around 7.30. And so, you know, you haven't eaten. It's 7.30. And so if you talk to a Bigfoot witness, you know, it's going to be at least an hour, you know, just for a normal sighting. So I think that that's what we look at is that, you know, people are trying to cover all the reports, but they're really cherry-picking the very best because I promise you if something happened in Ohio or West Virginia and I get some word tonight that, you know, somebody had a sighting and there's a track there, there's this or there's that, I'm there. Regardless of what's going on in my life, I'm dropping everything and I'm gone. But, you know, if it happened, uh, somebody had a siding crossing, you know, a highway 12 years ago, you know, I'm interested in knowing. I'll put it on a map so I'm kind of cognizant of it and it's there for historical purposes. But, you know, it just doesn't help me a lot at that time. And I think that's where most of the guys are and girls that are doing it. Yeah. Yeah, I I have a feeling – the majority, not just with the BFRO, but a lot of uh, a lot of groups and researchers, enthusiasts, they're chasing the, the the latest story, the newest story out there, and not going back to some of the more historical reports. Uh, and I know the yeah. BFRO's got an absolute killing ton of reports like that that just don't get researched because, you know, I mean, really, uh, you can look at some of the older reports as historical value and maybe get a better idea of what's going on in an area, but you know, uh, it's hard to keep up when you're getting a yes. constant amount of recent reports. Yeah, you know, that was what I was telling you about earlier when I started looking at some of those reports and considering going back. Like there was one report that I thought was 
exceptional. And when I called the guy that did the report, he told me, he said, listen, I wouldn't use that one in retrospect as the years have went by. I'm not sure that that report's true. And, you know, so that was one of the reasons why, you know, you were hesitant to pull anybody else's um, reports out of there. I mean, it's, um, you know, I mean, if you look at the things that we have now and the evidence, and I'm going to say evidence, and I say that loosely, but, you know, it drives me crazy right now. I mean, if you go on any of these websites and you're seeing these scuff in the dirt or a tree that's been down and people, you know, are saying that this stuff is Bigfoot evidence, and that's one of the problems that we have is, you know, we have to police ourselves because, you know, we don't have the government involved, we don't have the universities involved, and a lot of times that's where the standards are set. And so, you know, we're left to police ourselves. And so then that's where you get where a lot of the people in the groups don't want to talk to each other because, you know, unless, you know, you know, hey, I know Gunnar Shane and, you know, they're good guys. And so, you know, I know if they tell me this is real, then I know this is real. But, you know, a lot of the people, you know, we don't, we don't know each other. And, right. um, and I'm not compelled, you know, if I see, you know, like on Facebook, you know, one of the many groups there are for Bigfoot on there and you see this tree break and I, and they'd say, well, you know, Bigfoot tree break, and I'd say, you know, I'd send a message, and we'll say, you know, well, how, how do you know that? I mean, did you see a Bigfoot there? Or, no, but, you know, the way it's a fresh tree and blah, blah, blah. You know, and this master naturalist takes it and helps teach tree classes. You know, I can tell you that, you know, you just can't look at a tree and something break and think that there's not disease in that tree or not insects. You know, you right. just it's hard to tell sometimes. And so, yeah, um, you know, you need to know, like, all of us need to educate ourselves. Like if we're going, you know, just like if you're a deer hunter, you know, would you go into the woods not knowing the type of trees that produce the fruit that the deer would eat, you know, the acorns and the hickory nuts or whatever it happens to be, or the certain plants that your deer are going to be after and certain types of this and that. I mean, all of us kind of know that. And squirrel hunters would do the same. And Bigfoot hunters need to do the same. You know, we need to be familiar with the different types of trees that are out there because, you know, if we see a tree break and we suspect something, you know, we want to look at that tree and say, you know, that's this type of tree. And then later, you know, we can Google it and see, you know, it was a cherry tree. Well, what kind of pests do they commonly have and where do they, you know, affect that tree at? And you'll be surprised, you know, sometimes a cherry tree has this particular type of insect and it's about five feet high and it causes it to break off and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and you know, you'll notice a lot of times the people that are having these TP structures, you know, inevitably a lot of times they're in, pine areas, of course, you know, those trees have such small root systems that they're notoriously falling all the time, and, you know, people are putting things on there, you know, what do you think of this, and what do you think of that, and I think that they're getting it backwards instead of, you know, going someplace, and when you find someone has a sighting or someone has a track find where they find scab or something else like that, then you work from there and work the evidence that way, but, you know, we just can't go working the evidence backwards, and, right. Oh. Joe Bielard, which uh, wrote that great book, The Oregon Bigfoot Highway, and helped him with mine, he told me that he thought that uh, stick structures were relevant one in a million. Yeah, and I would tend to agree. So, you know. um, yeah, I, I want to, this is an interesting topic. I want to come back to this in just a sec, but real quick, I wanted to ask you a question on, on you know, BFRO and the reports that you take in personally, I mean, how many reports out there, including those sent to the Bureau of Pro, where people are just saying, hey, I, just, I, I don't want this out there publicly. I just, I just want to share this with you, uh, maybe get off my chest or get your, your ideas. 
I mean, do you get get a lot of those with the BFRO and then, you know, just not through the BFRO personally? I would say that uh, maybe, you know, when you start out, the great majority of your reports, because no one knows you, are through the group. And, you know, so you come into an area and, um, you know, hopefully there's people that have been working the area before you, whatever, you know, that happens to be. Because typically what happens is when you're new to the group, you're the one doing the great majority of the reports because, you know, it's kind of like the other people have did their time, and so then they're kind of just cherry-picking. And so then you'll have a newer person that's enthused about the newness of it and the excitement of it, and they'll cover a lot of the reports that um, were reports that were worthy of someone talking to, but not something that's so hot that it was an immediate type thing. And um, then as time goes on, I would say that, it kind of flips in that you get the majority of your reports through your relationships that you establish with people around the states that you work. And that I literally don't have one day since I've been involved with the group, which has been, I don't know, eight or nine years or whatever it's been now, that I'm not on the website at least, at least three times a day just to glance quickly at my state in Ohio. So I look at Ohio and West Virginia. I could look at any state, but, you know, you can only right. cover what you can cover. And in Ohio, primarily, I'm interested in the southeastern section, which is you know where my farm is and where the great majority of the reports come from anyways. But I'm checking it that many times, you know, and people have a hard time understanding that, just like you guys, you know, we're ate up with Bigfoot, and I think about it all the time. And so, <laughs> you know, uh, when I get a break in between patients, you know, I'm on my phone just checking, just real quick. It only takes me a second to glance and see whether or not there's something there, and I'm probably returning, you know, five to ten Bigfoot messages a day from witnesses that, you know, like I said, I'm working with a couple of different habituation uh, people that are out there right now. Um, in those cases, gosh, you know, that's a that'd be a really interesting show. Just someone that, uh, you know, if you had several of those people that are on there, you know. But once again, you know, what are you going to get? I mean, it's a trouble right now. As far as I know, in the United States, nobody's testing hair. There's a lot of people around that are looking at hair and will look at hair and say, you know, just like I will under a microscope and say, hey, this looks like a Bigfoot hair to me. But, you know, that's not scientific. It's an educated guess. And, you know, there's nobody that I know of that's doing DNA testing. You know, you don't have a type. So at best, it comes back, um, you know, unrecognized primate or something uh-huh. along those lines. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, have there been those? There have been those dozens and dozens of times across the country. And I'm sure there's tons of, of researchers just like me that work with people that I think I could get hair at any given time that I wanted it. But what do you do with it then? Because, mm-hmm. you know, you don't have a type and no one's really testing it any longer. So, you know, and, of course, there's the expense that goes with it. I don't think it would be you know, undoable to cover that, but, um, you know, just some of the the uh, processes just to, that we're up against that way. But, you know, like I said, going back to the report thing, you know, I'll tell you that, you know, in the course of the year, you're going to have four or five reports that, you know, are, are so compelling that you just know that it's true and anybody would be interested, you know, in those particular reports when you get them. And, you know, like I say in the book, all it takes is one. You know, there's literally, you know, the BFR just had, I think it was middle of last year, the 30-something thousandth report. You know, 90% of Amazing. them are bunk, are misidentifications. Right. But if you went through all those reports, 
there's probably several hundred or a thousand that are crystal clear daytime signing by a profession, uh, you know, some type of professional or a person, just an exceptional report. And all it takes is just one person being correct and you have a new species, one person. And, you know, I find it compelling and think that, you know, I think that people are seeing something. Yeah, absolutely. Now, uh, I completely agree with you. Uh, Russ, what, what, why did you uh, seek out to become a, a, you know, you know, a professional naturalist, a natural or a master naturalist. What was what was behind that? Uh, and and uh, you know, what is what is a a master naturalist for those that don't know? You know, I'm gonna tell you. I think that we're so bound psychologically by things that happened to us in our past. I'm not just talking about Bigfoot things, but you know, when you see patients, you know, things that people go through their their experiences in childhood and and their adult experiences, you know, they shape the way that we behave, they shape the way that we act, how we handle things. And, you know, some of the things, the reason why I spent so much time and I even wonder about being in West Virginia, I wonder if it just all of it doesn't really come back to me having those experiences when I'm young and just, you know, sometimes we have things happen to us that, you know, when you're in the woods all the time like I was, like a lot of times those people say, I'm in the woods a lot or whatever, but, you know, they're really not in the woods like all of us are talking about, you know, that we're, spending hours in the woods. You know, you talk about the, um, you guys familiar with the, um, I think it's called the Hugh and Sullivan guidelines. Yes. You heard of that? Yeah. Okay. So remember those guys were big and you're part of the country in the, in the seventies. And, uh, Hugh can, I think was a biologist. If I remember correctly. I put it in the back of the book so people could read the story about it or whatever, but these guys were in the woods all the time. And what they said was that to have some type of evidence that you needed to have about, 200 hours and you know largely when I read that and I, and, and I thought about it as the years went by I think that they were pretty close I mean that's about the amount of time that you need to be in an area that would likely to hold a Bigfoot and I want to say that uh, if I remember the story correctly you know that they they were adamant about spending so many hours in the woods hundreds of hours in the woods and they carried their cameras right in front of us and I think that they had around 10 or 11 times that they said that they had a brief sighting and could just not get a picture. Mm. And, uh, yeah. you know, it's so hard. You know, you're carrying your phone all the time now, you know, and you see a bear and you try to get a picture, and you, you know, you just can't get a picture of the bear or whatever. But, um, a blur. Yeah, you know, it's just, it, you know, so that's what I think is that, uh, you know, maybe some of that went back to having that experience, spending so much time in the woods and having something happen that I couldn't explain. I just felt that need to be able to... Um, explain some of that more and you know i think a lot of times you know we've had naturalists through histories and a lot of times naturalists has just been a name that people have attached to themselves that um you know like some of our presidents were naturalists or some of the poets and different people and i'm not sure that there was a training that existed and really in, across the united states there's different levels of training west virginia has a great program for naturalists and the program uh, in West Virginia involves 39 mandatory classes. And so in theory, through Appalachia, a master naturalist should be able to identify any bird, any um, plant, any salamander, any snake, any animal, virtually anything that you walk in the woods or in the creeks or the ponds, that person should be able to identify in theory. And so they're taking 39 classes, three hours of lecture, 
and three hours in the field with some type of professor or doctor on that subject. So if it's a snake class, you got a snake three-hour lecture, and then you're in the woods with a snake person for three hours. And there's 39 mandatory classes, and then they'll probably have another 15 or so classes periodically. Maybe it's survival, maybe it's honeybees, or whatever it happens to be will come up that are optional that you know that you can take. And some of the places like uh, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina have very extensive master naturalist programs, and so it takes one whole year essentially about every other weekend. You know, uh, you're doing a Friday night lecture and Saturday you're in the woods for a few hours just to get through the program. And if you miss a class, then you have to go wait the next year to take that class. And so some of the states aren't like that. Like Ohio has a master naturalist program, and it's not as extensive, and it's a, just a kind of more like a master gardener type thing. You know, and I did a master gardener uh, program as well. You know, and it's one of those things where you go to 12 classes, and they're like three hours long, and you can miss one or two, and, um, there's a big book, and you call yourself a master naturalist. But, you know, the master – or master gardener, I'm sorry, but a master naturalist in some states is a very extensive thing. And, um, you know, and I'd say that in general it's just a good base for being in the woods and being able to, you know, identify different things. So, yeah. you know, that was uh, – I don't know, I don't know why I even started into – doing that other than just my interest in the woods and the belief that, um, you know, if I was going to do something, then I wanted to have enough of a background that, you know, you have a science undergrad degree and then you're a doctor of some type and then you're doing this. And, you know, I wanted to be able to make an informed decision when I saw something that, um, you know, that I could do that. And not only that, but as you guys know, so much of it is, you know, being able to be good with people. And um, that doesn't have anything to do with whether someone went to school for, you know, high school or whether they went to school for college. I mean, a lot of times people are just good at drawing facts out from witnesses. But, you know, once you have some type of evidence or whatever, you know, I just felt personally that I wanted to be able to, you know, look at it from a more scientific standpoint. Yeah, I, I think it's yeah. uh, fundamental, and I, I I give major kudos to you uh, for you taking those pursuits because really, all you, what you're really doing is adding uh, value in science to this field. I think it's fantastic. I I have an arborist background, and so when I when I view uh, so-called stick structures and tree breaks and that, um, I have a very keen eye, uh, trained eye, but also I'm very uh, Standoffish. I, you know, I never jumped to conclusion. What is the context of what's going on here? Uh, and I would, ima- I would imagine, with your background now, um, you're, you're, you're on the same boat. You know, I mean, you're, you're um, yeah. You go in there, and probably perhaps before, but you go in there. You know, you're shown something, or you know, whether it's a picture or, or in person, and you're really studying what's going on here. What's the context? Is this natural? Why would Bigfoot or Sasquatch build this, break this, shape this? Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? Yes, exactly. I think that's a context is the exact word that you know that um, <clears throat> that I was looking for. Like I talked to a guy on the internet, you know, maybe a month ago or something, and he was, you know, had some type of stick structure on there or whatever. And I started asking the questions about, you know, is there this or that, da 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 da, and um, you know, and of course he just had found this structure that he found compelling, but there wasn't, you know, any type of Bigfoot evidence related to it. He just found something that I'd like, and I 
told him, you know, hey, you know, you know what the scientists are looking for, right? I mean, you know, we need to make sure that, you know, we're doing due diligence on this. Mm-hmm. I mean, all of us like to be in the woods, and it's healthy for us, and, you know, and if we like it, that's cool, but, you know, we can't hold things out there because, you know, there's people, there's, there's scientists around that have a chance that that they could really contribute to the field, and they're they're afraid of things like that we hold out as evidence. They're afraid of woo, that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the Bigfoot is – uh, paranormal, um, you know, and, and that's one of the things I think all the time when I look at these things is that, you know, I think people underestimate how rare they are and how lucky you are to even get in a general area where they are. And so, you know, people are out there and they think that they have, whether it's wood skills or they're intelligent or whatever they are, and you go out and they're frustrated because they can't, they can't see one or they can't come up with some tangible evidence. And so then they start believing that there might be something more to the whole, you know, I paranormal woo type thing. And I, I don't really think that it has anything to do with that so much as that they're just rare. Right. And, uh, and you know, we're not used to dealing with something that's so intelligent in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mind-boggling when you come to think about it. Uh, for me personally, mind-boggling. Russ, what are, your, what are your thoughts on habituation? You mentioned it earlier and, and you kind of led into uh, something of interest, but... What are your thoughts on habituation, and, uh, I mean, are you aware of anybody out there uh, that you think might be habituating Sasquatch? Yeah, you know, I I know of, uh, you know, in the BFRO, we have uh, a female investigator named Ronnie Powell that's uh, out of Tennessee that, I, I don't remember the exact number, it's like six or seven different cases that, you know, she's worked with over the years, and at present, I'm working with two different cases that started with, a person having a class A sighting, you know, where they had a good sighting. One was a woman that uh, was hunting and came over a hill, saw something down below her on the hill, not very far away, maybe 75 yards, and she's looking at it through her scope, and she's saying to herself, you know, what is it, what is it, what is it, what is it, kind of out loud or whatever. Interestingly, when I was talking to this to this witness, she had told me that while this was going on, that rocks was falling around her and you know of course all the bigfoot researchers and you always tell you know you're always telling each other you know if you see the bigfoot never take your eye off the bigfoot (laughs) you know because a lot of times another bigfoot's going to try to distract you to uh, you know make make you turn your head and then once you turn your head you know invariably you you lose the other bigfoot you can never find it and uh and she had told me that uh looked like it was apparently juvenile and it was you know, over doing something with its hands and it went on for a few minutes as she was watching it and, you know, and something kept moving behind her and she could hear, you know, something throwing little pebbles at her and whatnot. And she saw it turn and it looked right at her. And as soon as it looked right at her, she turned around to look to see what was throwing rocks at her and stuff. She didn't see anything behind her at all. When she turned back around, of course, it was gone. And it's interesting now, um, you know, my experience has been with habituators that as time goes on, you know, it's like they formed a bond or um, not so much even from their interactions, but, you know, they they don't really care whether or not about gathering evidence any longer. I mean, I think that they're probably our best chance of getting evidence, but they're just really not that interested really in it most of the time. And, you know, they're interested in the creatures and they're ate up. You know, my experience has been that, They'll have an experience, 
and then you have to really watch it because then they want to think that everything's Bigfoot. You know, they'll think that every little thing that happens is a Bigfoot. And so, you know, I always talk to them about both these are women about trying to be objective about when they're thinking things and when they're finding things. And then aside from that, um, trying to be, keep in mind that, you know, there's a point where I may ask them for, um, you know, trying to get a picture or to give me some hair. If, you know, something comes along that, you know, we stand a better chance of doing that, you know, because largely, of course, you know, can't really get DNA from, hair because, you know, as I know you guys know that in the center of the medulla portion, Bigfoot hair is largely empty. It doesn't have a lot there, and so it makes it hard to draw DNA from. And um, so, but, you know, going back to these women, it's interesting. I The one woman, I helped her set up a gifting station, you know, where she built something that, you know, supposedly animals aren't able to get to it, and she can leave things out there. Like, um, for instance, she left a rubber duck out and the rubber duck disappeared and then it comes back a couple days later but it's crushed and she'll leave apples and oranges out and the oranges will be put on the ground but the apples will be taken and um, she'll leave the other witness will leave seashells out turned in certain patterns and leave food gifts in them and many times she'll have the get back to where the seashells are and they'll be filled with a gift for her, like raspberries, um, you know, or just something like a rock or things like that. Um, so it's pretty compelling. Like last, uh, well, Mother's Day, so I guess it was, what, a couple weeks ago here, the one witness had told me that her children had given her yellow flowers, and she had, um, you know, had them on the deck out back. And, of course, you know, like everybody else in West Virginia, she lives in the woods, you know, ways away from everyone else. And there's a path that she walks each day. And so when she went out, she noticed that her flowers were gone. But when she got a ways down her path, the flowers were sitting in their vase in the middle of the path that she walks all the time. So, you know, when she went back, she took the flowers back. They were all yellow flowers, and she set them there. Well, then the next day when she walked out, there was a bunch of wildflowers that were all yellow that had been picked, and they were just laying in a bundle in the middle of the path that she walks. So, so pretty much, it's probably a, it's probably a deer or some other no animal that's <laughs> picking flowers and leaving them for, for your witness. Yeah, you know, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's interesting, and you know, and I've heard them say time and time again that sometimes when they get gifts, that the Bigfoot had to have been there during the day. Um, you know, it's like they'll tell me, I should have seen it. I mean, if I would have been here right then, I could have seen it happen. You know, and I hear that commonly. And, of course, like I told you before, a lot of times I'll put out a cheap camera, you know, have them. You know, there will be people that call a BFRO and say that they're afraid, you know, that um, they're having a bad experience with intimidating behavior or Bigfoot in general scares them, and they don't want anybody to come out, and they don't want to tell anybody where it is. They just want to know how to get rid of them. And, of course, you know, most of the time we'll just say, well, just put motion lights up and, you know, I'll do the job. And, and most of the time you'll hear that, you know, that makes the makes the activity stop. But, you know, I put uh, on the one woman I'd given her, you know, just use a cheap camera and let's see what happens. And she had told me that, you know, uh, they were throwing sticks at it, that there would be a pile of small sticks when she would visit during the day. And um, so, you know, it's pretty interesting that way. 
Um, yeah, for, for, was- for uh, you know, for some of these people, it seems it reminds me of a lot of the Native Americans um, and their historical reports and those that I've talked to. It's like it's just a known fact. They're like, yeah, they're there. Um, you know, what's the deal? Uh, you know, they just know they're there. Yeah, you know, and I, and I think that these people are the same, and I think that there's people across the country, and of course, you know, in the past, you know, I don't know if people know this, but there's been three different cases where there was a habituation situation um, where the BFRO actually went in and bought the house. Well, I'm aware of as a group or somebody in the group, you know, trying to put a female, uh, one time they put a PhD, uh, that was a location in Kentucky, you know, that relates to the uh, Crittenden site and put a, um, a PhD in there, kind of like, you know, a Jane Goodall type thing, trying to let a, you know, the lady doctor come in and establish a relationship. And, and you know, of course, that doesn't always work that well because it seems that trust is an issue for um, Bigfoot. And, you know, it takes a long time for people to develop a trust. And um, some people just aren't that good with animals. I mean, uh, a lot of the times the people are having those habituation uh, happenings are women that, uh you know, you, you hear them outside, and they're talking to their animals and everything else, and they're saying, here, sweetie, hey, how you doing? How you doing today? You know, and there's just those people around are good with things like that. And um, so I'm not sure that uh, what will come of all that. I mean, um, I think that we can get evidence for sure from them. I think that um, – like I said, I just keep trying to get the, the ones that I work with to, to establish a relationship. I have them doing a diary on the happenings of it all the time. And then, like I said, you know, we have to maintain our ability to talk to them about um, being careful about what they read on the Internet, you know, because a lot of times they're asking me about whether or not it's true that there's such thing as portals that, you know, that uh, the Bigfoot can, um, you know, time warp or Bigfoot can do this or Bigfoot can do that. Cloak. And yeah, cloak, exactly. And um, you know, I think we all need to keep it on level foot finding. You know, if I had to guess, like I said, I think that uh, you know, what'll happen in the end is that uh, you know, a truck driver in West Virginia or one of the other states will come around a curve and, you know, unfortunately we'll have a, a dead Bigfoot or, you know, fortunately depending upon how you look at it. And the mystery will be solved, and you know yeah. we'll all of us be able to make all of our phone calls then and tell everybody we <laughs> told you so, and and that type of thing. But uh, well, let me tell you one yeah. other thing I wanted, to, and I was thinking about, um, you know, I wanted to let people think about, in particular, when trying to find an area that's active because it's really helped me a lot, <clears throat> and I call it a perch. And I know Tom Powell. When I talked to Tom, he had a a term, um, I think he called it a lookout or something or something. I forget, uh, Joe Bielart and I were talking about it one time. I can't remember exactly what. Look, look, Tom look out, it. yeah. Look out, okay. What I call it is a perch. And so I'll look on Google Earth or let's say I'm going to an area that I haven't been to and it's a park or it's a region or it's an okay. area. A lot of times it's a around a lake or um, it's on a river a lot of times here, uh, we have a new river running through the center of the state, and we'll have parking areas, you know, in isolated areas. Well, 
I think that Bigfoot is interested in people, and I think that it, you know he's interested in watching what people are doing. I think that he's interested in scavenging, you know, our trash, the things that we can. Once again, going back to you know this treat foods, you know, one of those is going to be if they can find an active dumpster or something like that. And of course, you remember that's how the Ohio how that everybody talks about so much. That's how that came to be was that you know in a back part of this park there was a remote dumpster. And some guys were throwing day-old rotisserie chickens from the grocery store in there and had set up a microphone there, and that's where the Ohio Howl came from. And so I think that, you know, they do scavenge and do things like that. So what I have found, and I've gotten to the point now where about 25% of the time when I go to the actual location, I'm able to identify a perch. And so when you go to a location, I'm always looking for a place that's, has the fact that it can come from a remote location. Like Bigfoot has to be in an area where it feels like that other people, people aren't going to bother it. For whatever reason, people don't go to that area. Maybe it's too far back in the woods. Maybe it's too steep. Maybe it's too this or it's too that. Whatever it happens to be. Maybe it's posted property. But for whatever reason, to get to a perch, you have to have an area where there's likely Bigfoot activity and no one was able to get to that. So they have a way to be able to feel safe and to come to this area, whether it's a parking lot, it's a place where couples park, it's a place where fishermen like to fish and there's a trash can there and they're throwing scraps or they're throwing their McDonald's bags or whatever it happens to be. So if you go to that area, and like I said, before you even go there, you know, you've looked on Google Earth and looked around this lake or this park or this river or whatever or campground, and you have found that, indeed, you can find an area that's very remote that leads directly to that particular area. Then when you go there, park your car, get out, and look around and say, you know, if I was going to watch people, if I was going to be sneaky, where would I be at right here? And I'll tell you, almost invariably, you guys can go someplace and point out, you know, if I was going to watch somebody, this is where I would go. And it would be right up here. But once again, remember, we've always already looked and found that there's a remote area leading to it. You know, if you don't have a remote area, you're not going to have a perch there. So, um, you know, it can be a place like I know uh, Joe Beeler said that there's a place that him and Tom Powell have been that, you know, they like to go and hike. And there was a rock that sat up above like the parking area, you know, and that would be a perch because when they looked at it on Google Earth, there was a very remote location that something could be in that would come to that. So how I think it works, it's like when you're deer hunting, deer stage. I'm talking about a big buck. So like a big buck doesn't want to come out in a field, you know, where everything can see it all the time. You know, it's leery. So it comes up from its place wherever it hides and lays, you know, in this remote, remote area that people don't go to. And then it creeps up through there, and then it'll stay in the brush and stuff. It'll stage until it gets dark, and then it'll come out to an area where it feels safe. And I think that these work similarly. You know, you have Bigfoot in an air location in a place where people, for whatever reason, don't go, and it moves up a little bit at a time into that area where it can watch the people. If something happens, it feels safe because, um, you know, it can go back to the location where it knows people aren't there. It doesn't have to cross a road. It doesn't have to... Um, Right. You know, worry about its safety. But invariably, many, many times when I go there, I'll be able to find um, stacks of rocks. I'll find 
heavyweight, uh, you know, tracks. I'll find sticks being broken, just little evidences. Now, keep in mind, people are usually only in these places during warm weather. And so, you know, most of the time you're finding them, you know, a lot of times in the winter you'll find them because you're able to get in brushy areas and you'll find these there. But here a couple of weeks ago I was doing a magazine article, and when I was working, uh, talking, being interviewed by the editor, he, he had said, well, you know, <clears throat> I talked to him about a perch, and uh, here we have a state forest not far from downtown in Charleston called Canal State Forest. And, and he said, well, you know, let's pull up the computer. He pulls up the computer, and he's like, you know, can you see any areas that you'd be interested in? And of the park, you know, some parks when I look at them, there's not one area where I'm interested in. And in Canal, I could find two that I thought were potential. And he said, well, let's just go look. And so, you know, he took his camera and whatnot and the photographer, and we went out there. Well, the one, the campground was still closed, so we couldn't get to that area to look. And so we went to the other one, and, you know, I told him, you know, there's there's these two big, um, like, shelter houses, you know, where people cook, and there's big grills and stuff. I'm sure that's, you know, in this park they probably have family reunions and things like that. But, you know, you could look on this hillside and see that, you know, things that come off this hillside. And I'm not talking about deer paths. You know, you could just see that something comes down off that hill that, you know, the way that the um, the terrain looked. And so, you know, when I look up there, I think, you know, where do I want to be? Where would I, if I was watching people and I was leery, but, you know, later I was going to come down and maybe scavenge some food, where would I be? You know, and I could see a couple of trees up there that, you know, I'd already looked on Google Earth. I knew there was a remote location that they could walk to there without being hassled or running across a hiking trail or anything like that. And so we went up there and, you know, of course, you get up there a little ways and you'll find a little piece of scrap and it was like, a, you know, something a coon had drug up or whatever. But when we got up to one of the trees, we'd found um, a couple stacks of rocks and there was a sippy cup. And the sippy cup's just sitting upright. You know, could it be humans maybe? I mean, it could be, but, you know, you know, who knows? You know, you're just looking for something to give you a start. And so then I went to the other tree that I found compelling and sitting at the base of this tree on the steep hillside in West Virginia is a golf ball sitting there. And, you know, an inch either way, and it would just roll off the mountain and roll all the way down several hundred yards to the bottom. But, you know, it's sitting right in this place where, you know, something would sit to watch people. So does that mean that it's Bigfoot? No. But, you know, it's compelling, and it gives you a chance to start at. And so, you know, maybe that's a place that, you want to think about in warm weather months putting a camera trap out there that's really well hidden. And, um, you know, so just thinking about finding that way, you know, you can go into a park before I even go someplace now. I'll go and Google Earth and look, and I'll have suspicious locations or likely locations that if there's going to be a perch there, it'll be in, you know, a couple of places, just like the campgrounds. You know, we know that they like to watch campers. We know they like to watch campgrounds. But, you know, what do you, how do you find that in a campground? Well, Right. You know, look on Google Earth and see which area of that campground is convenient to a remote location that, you know, doesn't have trails, doesn't have roads that something can come to. And then go to that area of the campground and think, you know, when I'm here, you know, if I'm going to watch people and stay hidden, kind of, where would I go? And then go take a look. And, you know, you won't find them all the time. You won't find them every place. But, you know, maybe someone else can take it the next step then, and then they can call me and say, hey, did you ever think about this or everything about that but I think that you know we all need to be sharing our ideas about things that you know we have found or whatever like I know now that they're active in warm months in certain places 
And so I'm moving some of my cameras this time of the year, trying to get them in those locations to see if I can get lucky. But, you know, where, what are they doing during the winter then? You know what I mean? They're not in those areas I'm seeing. And, you know, I, I, I'm, I think they're probably less active. You know, they don't want to expend the calories. I mean, um, you know, it just brings up other questions for people to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Let me make a point, and then I'm going to ask you another question here. But, yeah, I mean, Native Americans, uh, you know, if people think that Sasquatch watching us now and, and maybe raiding our trash or the campgrounds is a new thing, look at the Native Americans report, you know, uh, from hundreds of years ago where, where uh, they, they would catch fish and hang them to dry and Sasquatch would come by and pluck them, take them. Uh, yeah. It's not, tr- not trash per se, but uh, they're watching and, and be, being very opportunistic, uh, just like most natural animals are. Bears do it. I, I spent a huge amount of time in Yosemite, and I've seen bears come in and rip cars apart and take trash out. And so, you know, it's it's uh, opportunistic, and they've been, you know, I, I believe Sasquatch has been at this for a long time, uh, you know, depending on your opinion of what trash is. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I had friends, I had friends uh, a couple of years ago that were in an area in Washington that one of them had a sighting of a Sasquatch going through their, their trash bag, and he drew it up, and I was amazed by his description uh, and that's a whole another story, but yeah, I mean, uh, very capable, and I think Sasquatch do do this. Uh, I think it's you know, um, but to to get to the question, uh, talking about where Sasquatch are these persons up. What are your what are your thoughts and opinions, given all the research you have done and reports you've taken in on um, migration? Do you think they migrate, or or what's going on there? Do they go from state to state, uh, from elevation to elevation? What's your thoughts? You know. I think it's different in different regions of the country. I mean, um, here in West Virginia, the train is very steep. I mean, you know, of course, we're on average, uh, you know, we're the highest state in elevation east of the Mississippi. You know, on average, our average elevation is about 2,000 feet, which really, when you look at all the studies and the reports, 2,000 feet is about the average height of a Bigfoot sighting. Um, So, you know, I don't know if that's because it's not the coldest up there or that's where a lot of the game stays, but for whatever reason, you know, if you were going to pick a spot, you know, 2,000 feet would be a good spot to pick, you know, when you're looking at possible areas. And in West Virginia, you know, um, for instance, um, I was out in the woods. Uh, this was probably last summer sometime, and I was long. I was on this trail, and there was a remote trail, and it ran along this river. And it was in the New River Gorge. There's 51 miles of cliffs. You know, the New River Gorge is the uh, third oldest river in the world. It runs from south to north, 320 miles. It starts in the mountains of North Carolina. It runs, ends in uh, West Virginia, about 50 miles from Charleston. And, um, you know, I'm walking along. I'm looking at those cliffs because, you know, largely I believe that, you know, a lot of times Bigfoot travels, and especially in places like West Virginia, along right-of-ways. You know, they run for long, straight distances. We have lots of them. They're edges. And, you know, largely they avoid houses. And aside from that, you know, I see these cliffs that we have, and I think that I can see, you know, similar to, like, the great ape family you have. You have sentinel animals that are sitting along the edge of those cliffs. I can see the family group foraging and um, that sentinel watching for things. While I was watching or walking along that uh, cliff, and I heard a wood knock. And I stopped, and I heard four of them coming from, the particular cliff I was looking at, I was across the river, you know, the river's maybe, you know, a couple hundred yards wide or something. And, of course, keep in mind, you know, it's a cliff, so, you know, it's a thousand feet above me. I'm looking right at it with a very clear view. I can't see anything, of course, but 
there was four wood knots that I thought, you know, what, what are they seeing? I mean, um, you know, what is it? And about 30 seconds later, there were some four-wheelers that came along. Um, they were on the CNO railroad line. They were trespassing. They shouldn't be there. But, you know, to me, the four knocks, five, five seconds apart, you know, I know people say, well, they do two knocks, they do three knocks. You know, I don't know that any of us really know. But, I mean, to me, it was not immediate, and it would meant that, hey, watch out, somebody's around. Well, interestingly, I went to that cliff and climbed it. It took me an hour and a half to get to the base of the cliff, and there's no trail. When I got up there, I found this mine opening, and it's wide open. It's eight foot tall. I walked in at 10 minutes, never came to the end. And, um, you know, I thought, man, something could stay in here all the time. You know, I don't think they stay in places like that, but, you know, maybe the weather's bad, and, you know, they get in there to get out of the weather or something, you know, because they could hear people coming forever away. You can't get close to there without somebody knowing. And um, so I decided I was going to go back up there another time and put a camera up close to that area. Well, I parked, and when I parked, I had to go through some brush and trees. And, you know, it's just an old forest road. And I come out in a clearing below that cliff. And as soon as I come out in that clearing, I hear boom, boom, boom. You know, the wood knock is right above me. I stood for about 10 minutes just watching because, you know, I knew it could see me. And if it stood up and it moved, you know, I'd be able to clearly see it. I never saw anything. But to me, it's contrasting with those other wood knocks. This wood knock was saying, oh, my gosh, they're here. You know, watch out. They're right here. They're on top of us. And so, you know, I walked up there. Once again, you know, it takes me however long to get up there to that particular area. And twice while I'm up there walking, I hear a single wood knock in the distance. And to me, you know, my interpretation was that, that it was saying, I'm going this way. Um, you know, maybe you know, the group wasn't all back together or whatever. The family wasn't back together by the time, you know, that I started walking up in there. And so there was a wood knock. I don't know if that's what it meant. Who knows what it meant, but that's just me, you know, theorizing. But, you know, my point being is I think that, um, you know, on average our highest mountains here in West Virginia, um, you know, are around 5,800 feet. But keep in mind we're going from, you know, we're around sea level, whereas, you know, Denver, they're starting at 5,000 feet, and most of theirs are at 10,000 feet, so they're similar in height, but, you know, ours just start lower. And so for every 1,000 feet in elevation, our rule of thumb is it's equivalent to being about 200 miles north of where you live. So many times in Charleston, where the elevation is 300 feet, you know, we're having rain. We don't get that much snow in the winter, and maybe just 40 or 50 miles away, you know, it would be several thousand feet higher and they're getting a foot of snow. And so I believe that Bigfoot will migrate in the terms of it has a home range. It moves in that home range following the food, whatever the treat food is, the available food that they like to have. Um, they couldn't really stay in the same area all the time without, you know, having an available exhausting the food source. So, you know, I think that they have to move in a particular area. I think that when the storms are coming or whatever, they'll move down into a lower elevation into rock caves. You know, I found that one opening I was telling you about, and I called one of the mine people here in West Virginia. They told me that there was about 10,000 openings in West Virginia, not counting family mines that people had dug over the centuries and just remain open and no one knows about. You know, in these places, like I said, it's just wide open. Anybody can walk to it, but there's no trails there. 
and I wouldn't even have been up there except for I had heard the wood knocks before. So um, that's the extent, I think, on the East Coast that we see, you know, the yeah. migration. I know that there's people that believe that, you know, they come along the Appalachian Trail corridor up and down. And, I mean, certainly you would think that there's, uh, you know, maybe young adults or young males uh, trying to find newer territories or for breeding or something. There has to be some type of, you know, traveling farther distances, you know, at times. Well, Russ, uh, we're closing in on the end of the show. I think we have about eight minutes left. So, wh- I-, I got a question for you. What are uh, what are you doing specifically down the road here to to uh, make this sort of research uh, better? I mean, what are you doing, and where are we at in this research? Are we behind the curve, ahead of the curve? Are we going backwards? What's your opinion? I think that. Um, you know, it's funny, I remember a couple of years ago I was talking to the guy that does all the audio work for um, the BFRO. It's a guy in Virginia. He works for the defense industry. He's a crypto analyst. And on the Internet he goes by Monongahela. A lot of people know yeah. him. He has his own website. Great guy. And we'll listen to anything anybody sends, and, and it's very helpful. And I was telling him that uh, uh, I brought him into the, the BFRO, me and another guy. And so – I've always been close to him, and I was saying, you know, it could happen at any given time. And he said, you know, you told me that five years ago. And I think that uh, it's true. You know, time passes in a lot of ways. We're not any farther along. But I really do believe that um, there's a lot of people that are really investing their time and energy and thinking, trying to come up with new and creative ways. And, you know, once again, I still believe that in the end it's going to be a hunter or it's going to be a rare kill, but I think that there's a lot of people that, you know, are out there working, trying to come up with something new and exciting. I don't, I don't think the majority of the people are spending, um, are going camping and just screaming and hitting trees like people used to be doing. I mean, kind of like, you know, the typical expedition that a lot of people go on that type of thing, which is great and it's a good experience and it's a good way to learn about Bigfoot and go talk to people and, you know, if you have an interest, you know, I mean, what better way than spend a weekend doing that? And we all do it. And it's fun, you know, some of our best friends are there, so, you know, why wouldn't we want to go? But um, that's that's how I think it's, it's going to happen. I, I don't think that, um, you know, we're all using thermals, we're all using night vision, Um I don't think that anybody's convinced or compelled uh, in the public by any of that. Now, you know, it's interesting. If you go on um, some of the websites, you know, say Bigfoot Evidence, or you just go on YouTube and you put on Bigfoot in there, there's really some compelling things that are out there. But I don't know the people. You know what I mean? So it's hard for me to know for sure that it's true, and I suspect that some of it is true. And uh, some of it are real sightings, and some of it – aren't but you know how does one know i mean some of the guys that um are well known around the country you know have gotten fooled and you know so people are leery to make calls when someone sends them a footprint or someone does this or that you know or maybe they got involved with someone on tv that ends up wasn't uh very respectable you know so it makes people even more leery aside from the groups that they're in um to be involved. And I think that's what we need to do is, you know, we need, because the internet spreads us around so much more, the reports are so active. I think that the investigators 
need to work to develop relationship with friendships with people from other parts of the country. And if there's any way possible, you know, I'm planning on the next couple of years spending some time out in the West, um, you know, going to some of the, um, not the expedition, probably the expeditions, but some of the um, conferences out there as well, just to get to meet some of the guys. You know, I talk to them on the Internet and stuff and, you know, just never get to meet them in person. And that's why I'm just hoping that, you know, we can all work together and maybe if we can work together. And, you know, I talk about street foods and I talk about perch and I'm sure there's been somebody that's listening to us tonight that knows exactly what I'm talking about and they know the exact spot and they're going to go look. And yeah. But then they're going to take it a step further. I said that, and they're going to say, well, you know, you're right, but have you ever thought about this? And, you know, and I, I don't want that whole thing where, um, you know, people in one group don't want to talk to another group or people don't like this yeah. person or whatever. I, I think that people take themselves too seriously. I mean, yeah. you know. No, one of the things foot. that uh, Gunnar Monson, uh, co-host here and fellow researcher, says is it's about collaboration, not competition. And I, I love that phrase. That's really what it's about. Yeah, I think that he hit a nail right on the head. You know, yeah. when he said well, that. I think that I think that it's something that that it behooves us as citizen scientists to to work together. To, if if we're if our goal is the same, and that is to confirm the uh, the species, then I think working together is is uh, definitely uh, advantage. Not not. You know what's going to happen, Gunnar? I mean, exactly what you're saying is is citizen scientists. Because as soon as one gets hit or as soon as one gets shot or there's definitive proof, then all of a sudden there's going to be experts with quotation marks come out of the universities, all the people that have been sitting, that haven't been involved, that haven't been in the field, that are going to come out. And government's going to give money for people just to, you know, research them. And you're going to Mm -hmm. have people and all all of us that are out there, you know, that's why we need to work so hard to make sure that we're being attentive to you know, the principles that we can, and not letting the woo and the evidence that's not really evidence, whether that's the structures and that. And I'm not saying that, you know, Bigfoot doesn't do tree structures, because great apes do, and so, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that they don't too, but I just don't think that they're rare. One of the quotes I always say is that Bigfoot's rare, and so is evidence of his passing. Mm-hmm. And that's a great, that's a great to say. So... Well, Russ, we really want to thank you for joining us today. It's been a great show. You've been a, a wealth of information. Um, and sometimes at certain shows I, I find myself getting caught up in listening to the guest, uh, and Shane, Shane does a great job of, of interviewing. So um, it was uh, a, a very great show for me to, to uh, be able to listen to as, and, and participate in. So we, we really appreciate you uh, joining us today. And for... Um, for members of our listening audience, uh, where can they find your book? They can find uh, – uh, hopefully it will be in some other venues like Barnes & Noble here in the next couple of months. But for right now, you can find it on Amazon. It's called Tracking the Stone Man. And, um, you know, I'd love to hear from people. If they have ideas about some of the things I've talked about, expand on them, you know, that they can uh, they can touch yeah. base with me. And, uh, you know, I'm on Facebook, and uh, um, I haunt all the places the other Bigfoot – guys haunt and really appreciate you guys having me on and uh you know it's such an honor to get to talk to you and and uh hopefully we'll get to do it again soon and it'll because you know i found something really cool awesome thank you please please let us know so for for shane corson and myself gunner monson we want to thank all of you for listening and we'll be back next week 
Actually, Shane and I are headed to Eight Canyon next weekend, but we will be back in time to for our show. So uh, thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we'll talk to you next week. Have a great week. <laughs>